0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Take Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
1: I believe it's important to give people an optimistic, hopeful vision Because when people are fearful and don't have hope, they freeze. We need an action-oriented America.
0: Welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am not Ezra Klein. I am Jane Costen, filling in for Ezra Klein. And today we are sharing my conversation at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas with Washington Governor Jay Inslee. Jay Inslee is an interesting figure because he is running for president under the Democratic ticket, and he is the only candidate whose entire focus is on the issue of climate change and what America needs to do to combat climate change most effectively. We talked about how Inslee has fought to fight climate change in Washington state and where he's failed. We talked about how climate change can become a national and federal issue. And we also talked about some of the challenges he might face attempting to take climate change to the American people. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts, so you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Washington Governor Jay Inslee. Thank you so much, Governor, for taking the time to sit down with me. Um, I'm going to start out by asking you the same question two ways. First and foremost, why are you running for president?
1: Uh, thank you for that question. It's my favorite question, so thank you for leading with that. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm running president because uh, I believe that we have to make Defeating climate change is the number one priority of the United States. It has to be the first and foremost. It has to be the first and foremost and paramount duty of the next administration. And the reason is very, very simple. We are the first generation to feel the sting of climate change, but we are the last generation that can do something about it. And I believe when you have one chance in life, you take it. And we have one chance to tame this beast and grow a clean energy economy. And I also believe that this is a matter of great peril, but I believe it's a, uh, it's a moment of great promise as well, because it is an economic opportunity to reboot our economy and grow uh, millions of jobs across the United States, some of which I've seen in the last week during my first nine days as a presidential candidate. This is an opportunity as much as it is a challenge. But to have that, we need presidential leadership. And we know that presidential leadership can make a difference. Come to the LBJ library here in Austin. We have civil rights. We have Medicare because we had presidential leadership. We went to the moon because we were called to a higher mission. And we need a bugle call from the White House now to call the United States to a higher mission. That's why I'm running for president of the United States.
0: So that actually gets to me. That actually gets me to my second question, which is actually the first question just phrased differently, because Washington State has been a bulwark against climate change. You know, A founding member of the United States Climate Alliance, states themselves have had a lot more flexibility and freedom to deal with issues of climate change than the federal government has. As you well know from your time in the House, the federal government is a slow-moving creature that doesn't like change. So, why are you running for president? Why is that positionality so important in this fight against climate change?
1: Well, I love being governor of the state of Washington, and a lot of the things we've got done in Washington, I'd like to bring to the United States. Best paid family medical leave in the United States, one of the biggest minimum wage increases in the United States, gender pay equity. I just signed and led the effort to have the first net neutrality law in the United States. I'm happy about that. So we... we I want to bring a lot of the fruits of our uh, progressive leadership in the state of Washington to the United States. But when I thought about this uh, call, I realized that uh, our grandchildren have one hope, and that's if the planet moves against climate change. And the Earth only has one hope, and that's if the United States assumes a leadership position against climate change. And that will only happen if we have a president who makes this a primary obligation and an organizing principle of the next administration. So we need someone who's got that in them. I am the only candidate who has said this, that this needs to be the number one priority. And I'm a person who knows how to get things done. We've had tremendous uh, success in my state. We've built the best economy, best place to do business, and best place to work because we've had progressive values that value middle class families and value working people and value tolerance and justice. That's one of the reasons I've offered pardon to 3,000 people with marijuana convictions so we can end the racial disparity in our justice system. A first start. So, but, but you can't solve all of these other issues we have, the health of our children, our national security threats, the devastation to our economy that's being caused by floods and fires, unless you solve this problem. So this is an all-encompassing problem, and I look forward to get this job done. And by the way, so far I'm the only one who's expressed a willingness to get this job be- done. Because I tell you, I was thinking about this the other day, we are not going to get climate change legislation until we rid ourselves of that antebellum historical artifact called the filibuster, and we have to take the filibuster away from Mitch McConnell. And I am the only candidate who has said that has got to go so we can pass climate change. And one of the things I want to do before I leave this stage is to challenge all the other candidates for this position this morning to join me in saying we got to get rid of the filibuster so we can move against climate change. And I hope they will join me because the only way we're going to get something done.
0: So on that, uh, you, join, you would join two previous presidents, both President Obama and President Trump have wanted to end the filibuster, but they cannot do so because ending the filibuster would require the Senate to take action. So how do you propose co- you know, getting the Senate to take the action needed to eliminate the filibuster? Because this is something that's come up numerous times since, since the early 1990s.
1: Well, one way is there's a bunch of senators running for this position, and maybe if they get religion on this and realize a filibuster is gonna stop us from doing anything from healthcare to climate change. As long as Mitch McConnell has the keys to the car, we're not gonna drive it anywhere. And by making this challenge, maybe they'll see the light. And if they go back to the Senate, they'll help us actually get rid of the filibuster. So I hope that this leadership will help them along the path to a better tomorrow.
0: (laughs) So I'd like to get back to Washington State and to something that you haven't yet been able to get done. Uh, so in 2016 and 2018, Washington state voters voted on ballot initiatives that would put a price on carbon emissions. Two separate bills would have done two separate things, they both failed. You know, Six times a carbon tax has been attempted in the state of Washington and six times it's failed. So if you can't get a carbon tax done in the state of Washington, how on earth are you going to get it done in America?
1: Uh, We may not, and I may not propose it, but what we do know, and we're very fortunate in this regard, that we don't have just one tool in the toolbox. We've got dozens of policies that can help us move forward. So what we're doing right now, literally as I speak, is we have a suite of five bills in my state legislature, and I finally have a working Democratic majority, bless our fates, where we can actually get things done. So I'm very happy to tell you that three days ago, my Senate passed a 100% clean electrical grid bill to make sure that we get clean electricity in our electrical grid. I'm happy to tell you that we have a bill to eliminate super pollutants, hydrofluorocarbons, that is moving through my legislature. I'm happy to report to you that we have a bill moving forward to have zero emission vehicles, and we're leading the country right now. We're either number one or two in this. This will accelerate Uh, Americans or Washingtonians being able to get access to electric vehicles. I'm happy to tell you that we have a bill that will require transportation fuels providers to give us less carbonized, uh, um, cleaner fuels, a clean fuel standard. So we have a whole suite of policies which, if they pass, uh, we will achieve the same level of carbon reduction as the other measures you've talked about. What we have discovered, having uh, really studied this, is that the real carbon savings you get, at least at the level of carbon pricing that we contemplated, are in the investment side. Helping people get electric cars, helping businesses retrofit their businesses so they don't use so much energy, helping to have a public transportation system. And by the way, we have one of the largest transportation infrastructure packages ever. They can't build a birdhouse in DC. We have $70 billion of public transportation. So what we have found is the investment side And the regulatory side is where you really get your bang for your buck. And we are moving forward. And I believe we need to do the same thing on a national level. And by the way, you need to understand, in my state, we have done some great things. We have built a wind industry from zero to $6 billion in 12 years. We're electrifying our transportation fleet. I, I have the most electrified state transportation fleet in the United States. We're doing tremendous R&D at our colleges and battery technologies and new solar systems that are moving forward. And people are getting jobs like this. My neighbor's kid now has a great job selling electric batteries around the world. And I just was in Nevada yesterday where I talked to a guy who's building a 600 megawatt solar farm with 100 megawatts of, of, of storage capacity. That's the scale we can achieve. But we are not done. My state's got a lot more work to do. And that's why I'm glad we're doing these legislative things.
0: So it was interesting that you noted that you now have Democrats who are willing to work with you, because I think one of the interesting challenges you've faced, and I think within Washington State, has been that there are Democrats who are, you know, they think of themselves as being climate change, kind of staunch warriors on that fight, but with issues like, you know, the car tab bill having to do a Sound Transit 3, there are a lot of Democrats who are concerned that, okay, you know, I'm very supportive of efforts to fight climate change, are my voters as concerned as I am or are they more worried about ex- you know, expenses on their cars? So how do you translate the message of your climate change concerns to Democrats, not just in Washington state, but Democrats across the country for whom climate change is an important issue but not the number one issue?
1: Well, what is happening, there is a major transition going on in our nation right now, and that people are starting to understand both the environmental and health peril and the economic uh, promise. A poll came out this morning in Iowa, where Iowa Democratic primary voters listed defeating climate change as the number one priority for Democratic voters. And this is a wonderful thing tied with health care. People are understanding this now. And the reason is, is that, when I wrote a book about this, I, I co-authored a book about this 11 years ago. And at that time, climate change, right, was a chart. It was a graph. We could show people that parts per million were gonna get to 400 if we didn't act. That was an abstraction. Now it's Paradise, California, where I was a few weeks ago and drove for an hour through a town of 25,000 people burnt to the ground. And it was, it was an eerie, apocalyptic feeling to drive for an hour in a town and see almost every house burned to the foundations. People are now seeing Houston flooded, they're seeing the hurricanes, they're seeing Miami Beach, which has had to build up its main street uh, a foot and a half. When you walk on Miami Beach now, you walk down to the shops because of the flooding they've had to build their, their streets. So this is changing fairly rapidly as far as public perception. But at an equal rate is the economic opportunity and that's why I'm an optimist about this I believe it's important to give people an optimistic, hopeful vision because when people are fearful and don't have hope, they freeze. We need an action-oriented America. We need people to say we are going to go to the moon and we are going to build electric cars in Michigan. I'm driving a little blue General Motors Bolt right now, shiny little blue car, spiffy, safe, fast. We're going to put people to work across the United States of America. And that is a hopeful message that I believe will spark a new revolution in clean energy in our country. I'm looking forward to that.
0: So obviously economic growth is the carrot in the conversation about climate change, but there does need to be a stick, so to speak. You know, For real change to happen on issues of climate, there will have to be changes to base, you know, basic American life. And I'm glad you brought up the example of Paradise California, because a lot of these subdivisions that are being built in fire zones arguably should not have been constructed in the first place. And we're seeing that time and time again, in which the areas that are facing some of the first brunt of climate change needn't have been built in many senses. And you know, there's an argument to be said that, especially say in the out west, that our children and grandchildren should be living in dense urban areas while fire zones remain able to kind of deal with fire in the way that nature intended. So, you know, that's going to be a big challenge to make that pitch to suburban voters in, say, you know, in virtually any state. How do you plan to do that while taking climate change as seriously as you seem to?
1: Well, I think that what you've pointed out is that in defeating climate change, there's no silver bullet. There's kind of silver buckshot.
0: Right. That's what your quote from your book
1: have you read my book? I, I wanted somebody to read my book. Were you the person who read my book? That was awesome.
0: I have read portions of your book.
1: <laughs> I, no, a serious issue, though, I think that what you've pointed out is to deal with this, we have to think in multi-dimensions. This has to be throughout our thinking. It has to be through through our land use planning. We're going to have to have denser uh, uh, more accessible housing, so we don't have to travel so far, so we don't have to burn so much gasoline to get to work. We're gonna have to think about what we call the urban-rural interface, where if you are gonna have a house surrounded by pine trees, you're gonna have to really think about fireproofing your home, and this can make a big difference. Uh, we're gonna have to think about uh, our transportation systems where we give need to give people more choices, and this is not a dictatorial thing, we just to give people more choices. We are giving people more choices now and they're using them because we're building a lot more public transportation system and we can't build it fast enough. Every bus, every light rail, every ferry boat we put on the line on the lines are getting used like crazy. By the way, we're, we're intending to build the first electric ferry boats in the in the western hemisphere, so I'm really excited about this. We have to think about education. We want to make sure our children understand education. We've got to think about health care how we're gonna respond to the increasing asthma and infectious diseases that are being associated with healthcare. And when we think about this transition to a low carbon and no carbon economy, we've gotta have not just a transition, we have to have a just transition. That means that we realize that the first victims of climate change are marginalized communities, people in, uh, in poverty, communities of color, and we have to design a system that will respond to their particular uh, victimization of this. And we're doing that in our plan to make sure that we help these communities, help them in multiple ways through this transition. So that's only page three of my book. I better stop right now. Thanks, Jane. Um,
0: so you told my colleague Dave Roberts at Vox, uh, read vox.com, that whether climate change advocates are going at 75 miles per hour or 55 miles per hour, you're all moving the same direction. Is there really space for moderation in the climate change movement when it seems as if climate change is a more dire issue than ever before?
1: Well, I think when you use the term moderation, no, there's not room for ignoring the threat. There is not room for ignoring the science like the president is. By the way, I think it's kind of disgusting that we have paid millions of dollars to assess scientifically the threat of climate change and the national security threats. I had Admiral uh, Fallon of the Navy in Seattle two days ago talking about what the great national security threat. We spend millions of dollars on this research and then we have a president who wants to scrap it. I find that totally unacceptable. Uh, So no, there's not room for moderation, but there is room for finding a way to talk to people where they live and what they care about. So if you're talking to a person that has been concerned because there have been some layoffs in the auto industry in the Midwest, we need to talk to them about the economic opportunities for jobs created in the multiple platforms that are available and we've got to talk in a way that those are well paid family wage jobs because we've got to start respecting organized labor again, protecting collective bargaining rights and making sure that these jobs are family wage jobs. And I believe that really strongly. So I don't think that's moderation, it's talking to people where they live. And that is succeeding, that's why these numbers are going up in the polls.
0: What are your first 100 days on climate, hypothetically, if you were to enter the White House?
1: Well, the first thing we would do is uh, find the office and find where the keys are kept, that's the first thing. But the second thing is uh, to look at the executive actions that we could take first to restore what President Obama did. Thank goodness for President Obama. He did take action against climate change. So the first things we would do is to restore the executive actions that the President hopefully unsuccessfully has tried to tear down. By the way, it's great uh, President uh, Trump has been unsuccessful unwinding the Obama administration because they're not smart enough to figure out how to do a new rule. These are people who could not run a two-car funeral. So as a result of this, Many of the rules they've tried to get rid of, they can't. But to the extent they're successful after litigation, we wanna restore those clean energy rules of the Obama administration. Then we wanna look at the executive actions that we could take to promote the clean energy agenda. And I do believe there's some things we can do in clean fuels, in low carbon fuels, in research and development, using the uh, uh, the Pentagon as an instrument of developing uh, clean energy sources I I just saw uh, Ray Mabus, former Secretary of the Navy Navy a couple days ago in Seattle, he started the Green Fleets program where we run our ships on biofuels. Look, we can fly airplanes on biofuels. We have flown a Boeing 737 across the Atlantic Ocean on biofuels, we've we've flown F-18s. So we can use the procurement policy or, or power of the United States military to drive some of this clean energy. Then we will propose uh, a a climate package that will take legislation to work with the US Congress to get this job done. And multiple things, many of which will mirror what we're doing and proposing in the state of Washington. But I want to repeat, we have to have people who are willing to shake things up in Washington DC to end this filibuster, because we will not be able to to do a single thing on climate change as long as that filibuster exists. So I'm kind of outside of D.C. right now, and I'm going to make sure that the, this is an issue in the next campaign. We've got to get rid of the filibuster.
0: So just to back up a little bit, outside of the Pacific Northwest, I would say many Democrats don't know you very well just yet. So how would you say that your positions are similar to those candidates who have already announced or are interested in announcing, and how are they different overall, not just outside of the area of climate?
1: Well, we're similar in that uh, there are some basic core beliefs that I think all of the candidates that I know of share, which is we have massive inequality in our economy that has to be righted. We have uh, a very core belief for the Democratic Party that we believe in tolerance and justice and individual liberty, and I think we all share that. I think we all share a passion uh, to lead, uh, and that's why people get into this race. And so I respect everyone that's got into the race. What we don't share is a willingness to set a priority. And I am willing to set a priority. And to govern is to choose. If you don't set priority, things do not get done. Defeating climate change will either be priority number one or it will not get done. And I'll tell you why I believe that. It's because this is a heavy lift. This is not easy. This is about mobilizing the United States somewhat similarly like we did when we defeated fascism, like we did in going to the moon. That is a major league mobilization. And to do so, we have to foster and unite and use the political capital that is necessary to get this done. I've been through this drill. I've been working on this for at least two decades. So I recognize both the things that can work and what has to do to actually get the job done. So I am unique in saying it is priority number one. I am unique in knowing what it takes, which is one thing is to get rid of the filibuster. And I am unique of having the experience on how to do this. I'm the only person who's co-authored a book on it. I helped establish the Sustainable Environment and Environment, uh, Environmental Caucus in the US House of Representatives. I led the creation of the United States Climate Alliance that now has 21 states that are committed to meeting the Paris agreements. And we did this in w- for one reason, we wanted to show the rest of the world that there is intelligent life in the United States. And we have succeeded because nobody really has followed Donald Trump. And By the way, this is a big deal. These 21 states, if we were a separate nation, and I'm not suggesting that at the moment, but if we were a separate nation, we would be the third largest economy in the world. So we have momentum on this if we get a president who will blow the bugle for this higher purpose of the United States and I will be that president if I'm chosen.
0: So I wanna go back a little bit to the discussion about carbon taxes because on that issue, um, you know, after the most recent ballot issue failed, you said that um, you know, if an in- the initiative had merely said Washington state should move on climate change, it would have passed. Uh, A large number of Americans recognize that climate change is taking place and that it is a concern, and that's where all agreement ends. How do you think that you could convince the American people to take climate change as seriously as you do? Because I think that it's an issue that, you know, obviously changes in weather and changes in kind of environmental patterns are pretty obvious, but for many Americans, that's not what their top priority is.
1: By beating Donald Trump, and that is the highest purpose that I have right now, when that, when that chaos-producing, division-spreading narcissist is removed from the White House to perhaps some other more secure facility, um, we will have removed a climate denier from the White House. And we will have sent a message across the world that the United States is open for business to defeat climate change. And when this becomes a principal effort in the election, and I defeat Donald Trump, this will be a statement across the world that the United States wants to defeat climate change. So when you make it priority number one, and we beat him, it will be a statement of national intent. It will be a statement of national unification. And it will be a statement of optimism about what we're capable of in the United States. Look, I believe we are unique in the United States. We are the most innovative uh, people in world history, we invent. We create, we build, it's in our DNA. We went to the moon, we built, in my city, the first commercial successful jet airliner. We invented the first artificial kidney machine. We even invented the $4 cup of coffee. So uh, by the way, the inventor needs to stay in private business, by the way, I want to make that clear. Um, (laughs) This is time to have some fun sometimes up here. But I really do believe that when you make this a central campaign issue, it will give us momentum uh, for the next president to move on this. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm in this race. Now, another reason I do want to note where I think I'm capable of this job, um, uh, my term while I've been in office, we have achieved something that I think is a template for success for the United States. Because we are a test bed for progressive ideas. We have created the, the best economy in the United States. Business Insider said it's the best place to do business. Oxfam said it's the best place to be an employee. We've got the fastest G- GDP growth, the fastest wage growth, the fastest job growth in the United States. Now, how have we done that? It is because we have embraced this suite of progressive politics, it's, or policies. It's because we have the best paid family leave. It's because we've increased the minimum wage to one of the highest in the nation. It's because we've finally given teachers the raise they deserve. And I'm glad in Austin here today, they're coming to the Capitol to tell legislators here to support public education. It's because we have the best net neutrality in the first bill. It's because we have the best voting rights against this venal evil Republican effort to suppress the vote. It's because we're working on bringing uh, justice to our criminal justice system and ending this racial disparity. It's because we've made the largest increase in public education and early child education, and having 20,000 more people have access to higher education scholarships. It's because we have embraced these progressive policies that we're the number one economy. So I would say this. If you want to know what progressive politics does, come to the West, to Washington State. That's a place that will show when you want to build a middle class, when you recognize the importance of a middle class, where you recognize what builds an economy, you need to build it middle out, rather than trickle down, that's a template for success for the United States. And I'm your guy in that regard.
0: So I, I wanna kind of ask you a couple of questions about that because I think that the progressive politics that are enjoyed in Washington State, have they've been, come into conflict with a lot of other progressive priorities for example the issues of homelessness and affordable housing in Seattle which has reached in some and some would argue a crisis point for many so how would you plan to balance kind of the issues of climate change with you know kind of the more I would say kind of obvious problems of affordable housing and homelessness that many people are experiencing right now in Seattle and that people are experiencing in you know in places across the country? Because I think that that, that's something I'm interested to hear how you would plan to balance those priorities.
1: Well, uh, there's really um, a troublesome and frustrating irony that the places in the United States that have had spectacular economic growth, in part because of our high-tech economy, Seattle, San Francisco, some other folks, the really strange irony about that is when you have spectacular growth, and you have 120,000 people moving into your town every year or two, and you don't build that number of housing units, you get increased increased homelessness. So this is a really troublesome frustration to us. So what we are doing in our community is first off, I'm plowing over $100 million into building more low income housing. We are working on on land use that will inspire more density so we can build more housing that is accessible for people in the workplace. We are increasing our minimum wage so that people, when they work, have a living wage. And those folks who say if you have a living wage, it destroys your economy, baloney. Come out to Seattle, Washington, where you have a $15 minimum wage, and it's the hottest place for economic growth in the United States. Because a lot of people who are homeless are working people. I was at a a shelter a few months ago where about 40% of the people, I was there at 7 a.m. in the, in the morning, and people walking out with their brown bags and lunchbox, cuz they're going to work. So we have to have living wages, and we are fighting that battle. So there's many things we have to do, we wanna get ahead of this curve.
0: How have you attempted to bridge the kind of cultural and political divide between Eastern and Western Washington? Because I think for a lot of folks who don't know the state of Washington very much, Eastern Washington is a fairly conservative area. You know? And I think that I, I'm interested to hear how bridging that divide has given you some ideas about how you would attempt to bridge political and cultural divides on a nationwide scale.
1: Well, I've had some experience in that because I started my time in public life in a little town called Sela, Washington. It was a town about 3,500, about 130 miles east of Seattle. It was a very red Republican agricultural district where I raised uh, hay and three feral boys in the sagebrush of the Yakima Valley. And Trudy and I loved living there. And I got involved in a school bond issue. We passed it. And then the chowder heads in the legislature cut the funding formula. So I got mad and ran for the legislature. And I was in the legislature for two terms and then Congress for one term, and those are all upset victories, so I have some sense of this. And the way you win in those areas is to to appeal to people the the things we have in common, which is job creation and good schools. And I won three out of four elections by talking about those things, by standing on the street corners and shaking hands. So I've won in places like the small towns uh, up and down in the Midwest, and I feel at home in those environments. But eventually, you do have to stand up on your principles. And in 1994, uh, when we were only three votes short of passing the assault weapon ban, I knew right here that was the right thing to do. We were having our kids shot in these, these massacres. And I knew in my heart that we did not need weapons of war. So I knew that was a political peril to me. And frankly, I knew I'd probably lose my seat if I voted for it. But I voted for that. And I knew that was the right vote then, and I know it's the right vote now, and we are still moving forward on gun safety. And I'm proud of that vote. So you gotta stand up for what you believe in and let the chips fall where they may.
0: So on that note, obviously, you're inter- you know, defeating Republicans for 2020 is important, but then will come the 2022 midterm elections, which seem thousands of years from now. <laughs> There, there is a sense that part of your job as president would need to be both defeating Republicans and converting them. How would you plan to do the latter?
1: Uh, by focusing on the former. And then when you see how many you've defeated, maybe when they feel the heat, they see the light. And I'm very serious about that. Uh, and that has proven somewhat effective on occasion. The unfortunate thing is that there really are no moderates left in the, the Republican caucus. And it has been most unfortunate that we've not had Republicans join us on the effort to defeat climate change. I am so awaiting the arrival of Teddy Roosevelt's uh, you know, a follower. And we'd like to see that. And we ought to extend a hand, and we do extend a hand to Republicans, to any Republican who will join us in trying to defeat climate change. There are few who have said the words climate change, We should welcome their ideas, but we should realize that if they are unwilling to support us, and unfortunately these folks are now, they've taken their oath to Donald Trump, not to the Constitution. And I would like to think that we'd see more of them stand up and vote against his vanity project in the wall and, and follow their oath to the Constitution instead of their oath to Donald Trump, both on the wall and climate change. But until they do, they simply need to be retired from public office. And I'm just the guy to do it because I've done it in many places. I was chairman of the Democratic Governors Association this year, and I'm proud to have worked with governors where we flipped more seats from red to blue than any time in the last 36 years. We elected five Democratic governors right down the heartland, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Illinois, and Kansas, and we can do that again because when we focus on job creation and meat and potato issues and helping tolerance and civility and justice, we win. And we're gonna do that in 2020, and I'm looking forward to 2022 as well.
0: On that note, you know, obviously last cycle you had some big wins with the Democratic Governors Association, but I think some big disappointments, namely in Florida and Georgia. Do you think that the issue there was that those two candidates did not focus on meat and potato issues enough?
1: No, I think those were both fantastic candidates, and they were both inspirational, and they brought new people to the polls in a way that did not suppress their ability in the general election. There were just a few more Republicans right now, and that's changing fairly rapidly. And both of those races do what we so often do in social change, in the effort for more justice. Uh, We did not win suffrage the first time. We did not win elections the first time in many of our states where we're now winning. And what Stacy and Andrew did was to advance the cause, to give us new visions of ambition and opportunity. And we're gonna be competitive in those two states. So I actually took inspiration from them and I hope they're gonna stay in public life because we love them both.
0: So can you talk about the lessons that you learned personally and politically from this most recent cycle about, you know, has it changed your approach in terms of how you think about these issues, and more importantly, how they, how you parse them out to a national audience?
1: I think the most important lesson for the progressive and democratic family is we can win in the Midwest. Now, there was a lot of this a falderall going on that somehow we could not connect with people who felt economic anxiety in the Midwest states. We totally disproved that assumption. We proved that we could connect with people who felt economic anxiety in the Midwest. We proved that we could have a vision of jobs through clean energy, where we're growing wind uh, energy right now in the Midwest, in Illinois, which is now advancing 100% clean uh, legislation. We proved that we could connect with sort of meat and potato concerns where Gretchen uh, uh, said, we're going to fix the damn roads in Michigan. And where we had Tony said, we're going to make the best schools again in Wisconsin. They appealed to these the folks who have felt economic uh, anxiety, and as a result, they won. So we should be confident in our ability to do that as Democrats. We demonstrated in our ability to do that as Democrats, and I believe we're gonna do it in 2020. And having led the Democratic governors to that victory, I hope to be uh, raising that flag uh, myself for the Democrats.
0: So speaking of Democratic priorities, um, you know, what are your thoughts on the Green New Deal and specifically the big package approach rather than kind of piece by piece legislation to combat climate change?
1: Well, I think first off, it's very welcome for a variety of reasons. Number one, It's got people talking about climate change, right? I mean, in the last several debates, there was like 12 nanoseconds dedicated to the existential threat to life on the planet, and nobody ever talked about it. So because of this inspirational work, now the nation is talking about it. That's been a, a big step forward. Second, it has raised the level of ambition for the scope and scale of this. This just can't be a back burner issue. It can't be something that you check your box and we'll go on to the next priority. It has to be a fundamental restructuring of the US economy that will require mobilization uh, of the United States as a unified country. Third, it has helped embrace the idea of of, uh, environmental and economic justice while we go through this just transition. And it has mobilized the community that has not grown up in the circle of privilege that has been subject to the circle of poverty. And it's made people realize that we can use a clean energy future as a lever and a machine for social and economic justice as much as environmental survival. So it's done all those three things that are very, very helpful. Now we need to take the next step and we need to work everybody uh, together to really fashion the policies that will will put meat on the bone. And we all realize we're going to all need to do that. And I will be putting forth a very comprehensive, robust suite of policies that will advance this to the actual policy level. And I look forward to doing that and talking to everybody. And I've been on a tour around uh, this nation in the last nine days, and I'm hearing good things. I met an entrepreneur who started as an electrician in Nevada, and now is building, you know, multi-million dollar solar plants. Uh, across the Southwest. I met an entrepreneur in Iowa who's putting on uh, solar panels in the snow of of Iowa where it's working. We started my campaign at a company that's putting on solar panels in Seattle, Washington. Yes, we got clouds on occasion in Seattle, but solar works in Seattle just like it does in Germany. So we're seeing this a thousand flowers bloom and I'm excited about this optimistic vision.
0: You've used the term uh, just transition, and I'm interested to hear more about your ideas for that because you know a lot of people work in fossil fuels. A lot of folks work in coal, a lot of folks work in the oil industry, not very far from here. A lot of folks are reliant, economically reliant on fossil fuels. How What does a really just transition look like from fossil fuels to clean energy?
1: It's a variety of things, number one, to the extent there is a tra- transition in individual lives, we want to do everything humanly possible to make sure that family is cared for during that transition. That includes not just training, but support as they go through a transition. Now we need to realize folks in these industries are not gonna be out of work tomorrow. That is just, we're not gonna do that like in 24 hours. This is something that will happen over the decades. It has to start now. And we have to start a vision statement and policies will set us on the course for this transition. And when we do that, we've gotta make sure that the new jobs are family wage jobs. That means robust minimum wage protection. That means finally embracing laws in this country that truly give people a chance for collective bargaining. Look, the NLRB is a broken instrument It is not protecting working people when they wanna form a union. And it is time again to protect people when they wanna form a union, to have a reasonable shot to be able to do that. And we've got to reinvigorate our protection to protect organized labor and the right to have collective bargaining. It means that when we do investments in infrastructure, in housing, we think about these communities that have been the first victims. And it is communities of poverty. It is communities of color who have been and are the first victims of climate change. You know, one of my little moments that sticks with me, a few years ago, I was on the banks of the Duwamish in Seattle. This is the industrial area in Seattle. And I met a 14-year-old Latina who uh, told me that she was 11 years old before she found out that there were some kids that didn't have asthma because every one of her friends had asthma. And then she started to do her own research and found out that every quarter mile closer you live to a highway or a toxic polluting industry, your asthma rates go up dramatically. And it's really interesting. She went door to door and did her own research and then I compared it. I took it to epidemiologists at the University of Washington and they confirmed her own research she did as a 14 year old. These are the folks that need to be cared for and, and first, because of the first victims. You look at the first victims of Bangladesh, where millions of people are going to be displaced, where the people in the Horn of Africa are going to be subjected to desertification, causing mass migration. Uh, by the way, anyone who wants to actually think about this, I recommend a book. It's called The Uninhabitable Earth. It is, uh, it's an eye-opener. And that'll give you a sense of what we need to do to have a just transition.
0: So you mentioned earlier some recent polling showing that for Iowa Democrats, uh, climate change is a, I think, number two priority just behind healthcare with about 80% of those polled saying it was a top priority. I'm gonna list out some of the other top priorities that uh, Iowa Democrats listed, and I wanna hear your thoughts on how you think that as president you could help to address these challenges. So first and foremost, healthcare.
1: Uh, We need to move to universal health care. We need to continue some of the efforts we've done in our state. We're now moving for a public option, one of the first in the United States. We need to integrate mental and physical health. We need to expand Medicare dramatically, including access to buy into it, including a lower age. We need to consider ways to enroll people in Medicare at birth so that we can set the stage for truly universal health care. We are having successful this in the United States. We are bending down the cost curve in my state, because cost is really important to working families as well as access. And we need to do those things as fast as possible to move towards universal health care.
0: Income inequality.
1: Well, we've talked some about this. Uh, Minimum wage is the most obvious thing that has been very successful in my state. And income inequality is not just minimum wage. It is the whole suite of policies that help working families family medical leave, uh, gender pay equity. I think one of the things we ought to do for income inequality is women ought to get the, the same wages as men. To me, that's a pretty basic thing. And we gotta, that's why we have one of the best gender pay equity provisions, so that if you're an employee in my state, you get to know what everybody's earning, so the boss doesn't give the man secretly 10% more than the women. This is a very effective way of, of driving Uh, eliminating gender pay uh, equity. Income inequality is a matter of education, obviously. Uh, I'm proud that we've expanded, and we've got one of the richest, most robust financial aid programs where we've increased 20,000 students, uh, having the richest financial aid program in the United States. It means uh, means the whole suite of things that will give working people and families a, a greater balance against corporate power. That's why I'm proud that we have, we are now. Uh, we just passed through our Senate the other day the best privacy protections in the United States, so that consumers and families are protected from the abuse of our privacy by corporate uh, behemoths uh, on the on the internet. I think we have to do things like prevent corporations from whipsawing communities by playing communities off one off against each other to get these giants tax breaks. So there's a whole suite of policies that we need to embrace. And we have to fundamentally fundamentally attack the racial disparity that has been so pernicious in our society. And there's many things we have to do in that. We've got to reorient our criminal justice system so that racial disparity does not infect it. One of the things we're doing in that is legalizing marijuana and doing these pardons that I've suggested for people, because the drug war has infested our criminal justice system with racial disparity. We've gotta do, I I gotta tell you, to me one of the single most important things we can do to bring racial justice to our society is to break the chain of poverty, the generational chain of poverty, where people have been, their destiny has been determined by their zip code and 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 the vestiges of poverty rather than their ambitions. And I believe the best single thing we can do about that is to get full day kindergarten, which we're doing in my state now since I've been governor, and increasing access to early child education. I believe this for 25 years. We're going to increase early child education. When you give a three-year-old who's living in poverty a chance to enter first grade level with the person who's a dentist, son, or daughter, that's a great future. And we got to do that as a, a United States.
0: So the final uh, issue on this list, I'll ask you about is immigration, and I'm interested to see your thoughts on you know, immigration reform. Whether or not you think it's you know this is something that Democrats have tried before. Do you think that you would be able to kind of handle the issues of immigration reform on a broad basis, especially in reflection of this particular administration?
1: Uh, yes, and I, and I'll tell you why. Uh, there's a lot of things that are maddening about Donald Trump, his chaos, his ineffectiveness, his narcissism, his tweets. By the way, he got some good advice at the White House last February. When I went to the White House and looked him in his eye and told him his idea to arm first grade teacher with Glocks was not the way to solve school violence. Putting more counselors so we can deal with kids with anxiety is the way to deal with school violence. And But I finished my comments by looking him in the eye and says, you know what? You need to quit, tw- you gotta quit tweeting so much and you need to listen to educators more. That was good advice. He's not taking it. But the thing that gets my blood boiling maybe most is him using the immigration issue as a cudgel to promote racial divisiveness and hatred in our blessed community. So uh, when I heard that he was gonna do this Muslim ban, I was getting on my bicycle on Bainbridge Island to go for a little ride. My chief of staff called me and said, what Trump was up to. I got off my bike and went down to Seattle International Airport and tried to help these families be re- reunited. And I'm glad to have been the first governor in the United States to call him on this Muslim ban and sue him to prevent this divisiveness. And I'm glad Washington State has done this. And I'm glad that we have now offered educational benefits to our dreamers, our future lawyers and engineers and doctors who are some of the most inspiring, ambitious people in. My state, those people need to be protected. And it is a crime against nature to, to use them as a bargaining chip, as hostages, in this effort to get comprehensive immigration reform, which we need so the millions of people who are working, who are neighbors, who are coaching soccer, can have a way to be legal in this country. And we need to do that. And I'm also proud that we're going to take care of his family separation and stop his wall, where we're going to call out the Republicans. And I'm saying we got to put these Republicans' feet to the fire in the next few days, where they are going to be called upon to follow their oath to the United States Constitution rather than fear of Donald Trump. And then if they don't call to that fundamental purpose, they need to be removed from office. That's what we ought to do.
0: So so I actually lied and I have one more issue that I want to ask you about because I, I, I am curious um, with you know, your conversation you were just having talking about guns specifically and I think, uh, you know, the gun issue has been a fascinating one for this particular administration because Trump believes firmly that he can negotiate with the National Rifle Association and by you know, the executive order on bump stocks, which has not been particularly popular in the gun rights community. I'm interested to see you know, what you would do differently from both this administration and the Obama administration on the issue of guns.
1: Number one, I would end the filibusters so we can pass gun safety legislation through the U.S. Senate. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good idea to me. So we can actually get things done. Number two, I would continue my effort, which is to defeat uh, Republicans who are uh, taking an oath to the NRA. And I've done that on several occasions. Number three, I would continue to expand nationally what we've done in my state, which is to do common sense gun legislation, to close background checks, to have extreme risk orders, so that if you have a family member in crisis, you can at least temporarily get a gun out of the home. We can raise the age. of 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 buying assault weapons. We can legally, constitutionally uh, provide that we need to have our gun owners uh, uh, secure their weapons so they're not available to have a playmate get them and shoot their playmate or be stolen and be involved in a burglary. These are common sense things. We need to follow the inspiration of the kids from Parkland and have common sense legislation in this country. We can do that when we elect the right president.
0: So I actually want to get back to the conversation about climate change because there've been a couple forms of energy creation you've mentioned already, uh, solar and wind most predominantly. But uh, near Richland, Richland, Washington is the Columbia generating station and last year it hit eight monthly electricity generation records as of October of 2018. That is a nuclear power plant. Does nuclear have a role in your climate change strategy and why do you think it hasn't been a part of climate change strategies that people have been suggesting more recently?
1: Well, uh, I would not uh, advocate shutting down all of the plants today in the United States because it would immediately result in much more coal usage and and bunker fuel usage, which is just not acceptable. My thinking is that we need to continue our exploration of low carbon and zero carbon uh, technologies. We need to continue to look at technologies that could be zero carbon. And that includes some potentially safe, potentially cost-effective, potentially acceptable uh, new nuclear technologies that are, that potentially could be safer and have public acceptance. Now, I emphasize the word potentially because they don't exist at the moment. But I believe it is appropriate to continue researching these new technologies. And there is some research going on in that regard. But they, to be acceptable to us, they will have to be much safer they will have to be involved with much less nuclear waste that has bedeviled us. And they will have to obtain uh, public acceptance. Those do not exist at the moment. But I do believe we need to continue to look at this issue to see if that's a possibility. Because the urgency is, is so dramatic to find a zero carbon ways to decarbonize our economy.
0: So you're, you're in an interesting place because you're the only candidate who is emphasizing climate change as your top priority. And I think that the challenges you faced in your own state and would face on a national level are that for every Democrat who is a climate justice warrior, for every Democrat who thinks that perhaps you not kind of demanding a carbon tax right now is watering down the fight over climate change, there are Democrats who are very concerned that this conversation will drive away independent and GOP-leaning voters first and foremost. So how do you balance that? And as president, you would be, in a sense, viewed as the leader of the Democratic Party. How do you balance those two between your own views on making climate justice a priority, and many Democrats who talk to their constituents and recognize that for their constituents, climate change is not a top issue?
1: Look, there's many Democrats who are behind the American people. They're afraid to say we should legalize marijuana. The American people want to legalize marijuana. There are many candidates who've been afraid to stand up, as I have, for gun safety. But it's the right thing to do. And there are many Democrats who, frankly, have not figured out how to talk about this. And and here's how I think we need to talk about this. This is a matter of character of the American people, as it is is a matter of science. This is a basic understanding of the optimistic can-do nature of the American people. And when we talk about a clean energy economy, it needs to be in the, in the manner of appealing to the optimistic, can-do spirit of the American people, as much as lecturing about physics and chemistry. And when you appeal to those higher angels angels of our, uh, of our forward-thinking uh, tradition of this country, I believe people respond, because I've seen them respond to John F. Kennedy. That's how we need to talk about it, number one. Number two, we need to talk about it from an economic message as much as an environmental message. This is not just about polar bears as much as I love them. I even wrote a book, a Christmas book, to my kids, and my grandkids about polar bears. But it is about jobs in Michigan making electric cars. So making this an economic message, fundamental to how we talk about this, is a way to win. The third thing I would say is I won on this issue. Look, I campaigned on clean energy in 2012. I started a race when I was 16 points behind against a very popular Republican attorney general, and I won by appealing to this vision statement for Washington state. Now that we know that Democrats are responding to it and independents in this polling, because it's moving up dramatically, I believe this is a winning message if we have somebody with vision and strength, and I would bring both of this to this effort.
0: So I wanna go back briefly, Uh, our time is almost up, but you've mentioned your 2007 book, uh, Apollo's Fire, Igniting America's Clean Energy Economy, and I I had two questions on that. One, what has changed since you wrote that book? Uh,
1: Several things, Uh, all of, two of which, three things have changed, two of which are positive. Number one, what has changed is that um, something shocking happened that just stunned People who know me well at all and that that I turned out to be right. And that is a stunning thing to people who know me very well. And uh, I've been right on the positive side in that I predicted that we would grow millions of new clean energy jobs in the next decade. We have done that. And actually the rate of job creation that has happened in building new homes that are energy efficient, putting in more insulation, building the rate of penetration of electric cars, the rate of new technologies, the rate of using public transportation, the rate of growth has actually exceeded what I have predicted, and that's really on the positive side. The other thing that has exceeded my prediction is, is that people have come to embrace this more rapidly than I, than I would have thought of because people are seeing clean energy jobs go so fast. The job creation in clean energies today is twice as fast as the average in the US economy. The fastest growing job in the country is solar installer. The second is wind turbine technician. So this is actually, on the positive side, gone faster than I I predicted in my book. But the bad thing is, is that I was also wrong in predicting how fast the negative side would have happened, because the rate of melt of glaciers the rate of temperature changes, the rate of forest fires in the West, which gave us smoke so the kids can go outside to play this summer in Seattle, Washington, because our forest fires are burning, the rate of ocean acidification, the rate of desertification in the mid-latitudes of the planet, including in Central America, by the way, which is now driving uh, climate refugees already the rate of these things is much faster than I would have predicted and faster than the scientific community predicted, actually, a decade ago. So uh, I guess the book did not sell, but it has held up well, and my my central tenets remain the same. And I am much more passionate about this subject than I was 11 years ago or 20 years ago when I first started on this, and I look forward to this campaign talking about it.
0: So one more thing about your book. You said in your book that there's no silver bullet for climate change, but there is silver buckshot. Um, can you explain to me what that means? Because I think that for a lot of people, those piecemeal, a piecemeal approach to climate change is both you know understandable, but I think largely unpopular with a lot of the folks who are working on this on the ground.
1: Well, I gotta take some issue with you about unpopular because every single climate warrior I know agrees with every single thing that I've proposed. Look. We need a 100% electrical grid. We need clean fuel standards. We need new building code standards. We need to get rid of super pollutants. We need to incentivize the production and distribution and access to electric cars and solar power. We need to have hugely increased research and development. We need to have increased public transportation and access. We need to have uh, global caps on carbon pollution, which I'm the first governor in American history who has put a global cap on our economy and carbon pollution. Now, a slightly misguided Superior Court has uh, has taken that away from us momentarily, but I hope the Supreme Court will renew that. Every single thing that I have uh, been for, every climate warrior I know of in America has said, go get them, Jay. So I think this is a message that is really successful. And I think the point I made in, in, in the book is one I feel very strongly about. This cannot be just like checking a box, Saying I've created a new agency and you know calling it a done deal. This has to be the organizing principle for the next federal government. Every agency of the federal government in some way has to be engaged in this effort. The Pentagon has to make this a central tenet of their national security policy. The education of our kids has to make sure our kids understand this. Our training programs have to be up speed to give everybody a, a shot at a clean energy job. Our transportation infrastructure heretofore has just looked at roads and has not looked at robust public transportation, which will give us cleaner energy sources. We have to make decarbonizing our transportation sector a central pillar of our transportation infrastructure planning, which we have not done. So we have to embed this. That's why we need a president who will make this a number one priority and understand the policies that are necessary to get this job done, and I believe I'm suited to that task uh, to a T. So I feel really good about my policy, and I hope you're a climate warrior and gonna help me out.
0: Well, thank you so much, Governor Inslee, uh, for joining us here today. Thank Thank you. Thanks, Jane. Thank you so much to Governor Inslee for joining me at South by Southwest. And thanks to all of you for listening. We do have a small request. As we're constantly trying to improve the podcast, we want to hear from you. We put together a short audience survey to help us understand what you like about the show or what you think could be better. It takes no more than five minutes, and we would really appreciate the feedback. So with that, thank you to our producer and engineer, Jeff Gelb. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we will be back in a couple of days.